Do we all have a, I'd love for you to turn to the book of Job. Take the take your Bibles and turn with me. Take the word of God, please, to Job chapter number one. Wisdom probably would have told me had I asked that I should not have preached today. I thought that I was a little more resilient than what I really am. You may be thinking, I thought you took the week off. In some sense, I did. Um, Being a pastor is somewhat like being a father or being a husband. You can set aside some of the practical duties, but at the same time, you never cease to be that. And oftentimes, that has changed through your personal walk in life um, with the Lord. And as you even take off um, to be with God, to read the Word or what have you, or to work. Um, And while you're not there with Him, you're still growing as a father. And you're still growing as a husband. You're learning what what it means to be a man. And thus it influences it. In some sense, this past week has been a very difficult week. And it's been a week where practically I've taken off certain duties within the church. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you take time off from the Lord. Um, You continue to seek Him and continue to understand and you continue to strive to be faithful. Um, so I did a lot of that this week, um, asking questions and seeking comfort in his word and, and thus I bring you some of those med- meditations this morning um, from the book of Job. Um, and I pray that the Lord uses it. If you will stand with me for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. We'll pick up our reading in verse number 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell on the ground, fell to the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Let us pray. Father, we love you and thank you and praise you for the privilege it is now to come to your word. Father, we recognize that it is eternal. It is breathing this morning. It is life in some sense. As it presents to us the very nature of God, the person of Christ and the power of the Spirit. So, Father, we ask you that it might work this morning in us. Father, that you might teach us, that you might labor with us, Father, Um, that you might go into the depths of our heart and bring to life um, and bring to light the dark places. Father, that you might energize us for the work that you've given us to do, that you might aid us, Father, in repenting of our sins and aid us, Father, in clinging to Christ and to Christ alone. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would rule and reign in our hearts now and that we would joyfully, Father, willfully... um, and unselfishly cling to your word this morning. Father, we pray that you would go with us now um, for the next hour, that you would stay our minds, that you would give us a sense of reverence and awe, but at the same time a joy and a faith to believe you. And Father, would you, would you not allow me to take any glory from you? 
Father, at the end of the sermon and all throughout, may we feel the weight of the countenance of an almighty God who's holy and righteous and at the same time loving and gracious. May we feel the weight of that upon our own souls. Father, may it pervade our minds, the very nature of God and His love for us and the work that He is accomplishing in and through us. Father, would you help me not to make this about me and to make this solely about Christ. And may we be forever changed as a result of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, you can be seated. Amen. We come to the book of Job, chapter number one. If there's a book of the Bible that you're at least somewhat familiar with, I imagine that this falls within the at least the few. I would love to give you a little context, so we'll pick up in verse number one. It'll be a very simple message this morning. We'll simply read the text and seek to apply the text, beginning in verse number one. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. I'm not going to labor much on who Job is and his background, where he's from, simply to say that he's in a pagan land, the land of us. He's not an Israelite. Chances are that this is prior to um, Abraham. He's, he's possibly a contemporary uh, many scholars, Christians throughout the ages have believed that the book of Job is probably the first written book of the Bible. Um, so Job would be a man without, without any special revelation um, in the sense that we have it before us. He, he doesn't have the 66 books of the Bible, um, uh, the Old Testament or the New. Um, he's a man operating off of the activity of God um, in the nature of his soul as an image bearer of God. But any extra revelation that God has uh, deemed right and so to give um, to Job. Um, more importantly, we want to know uh, the following text, and that's what type of man Job was. And that's what we see in verses 1 through number 5. We see the character and the life of this man by the name of Job. And I do think it's important just to note that we need to, re when we read the book of Job, we, we have to read it in a, in a literal sense. You know, there's, there's an attack upon uh, on many books of the Bible. Job is one of those, arguing that this is poetry. And that may be the case, um, but the rest of the Bible doesn't give an indication of that, thus we must reject it. Uh, for example, Ezekiel chapter 14, the prophet seemed to believe that Job was a real guy. Um, and that's extremely important to us as we apply the text to our own lives. He says in Ezekiel 14, 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, speaking of the judgment that was coming upon the nation um, as he prophesies against them, he says, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God, that Job was a real man. Job was a man like us. He was made of passions like us. He was made of flesh and blood like us. He lived not in our time, but in some sense a time like us because all times are in some sense the same times. Um, battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and seeking to submit and yield ourselves to God, um, that's where we find Job. In a land foreign from us, but in a land in some sense the same as us. And a man not like us, but in some sense a man just like us. And thus we find in the book of Job a picture um, of this man, his character, and his life. The Bible says in verse number 1, And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. If this was a man who was a man of character, he was a blameless man. Uh, the term blameless there, it's, um, 
It doesn't mean that he was sinless, that he was a man of integrity and that he was a man of faithfulness to God. Um, the, the idea of integrity is that he's fully integrated, hence the word integrity, he's complete. The idea is, is that what is on the outside is representative of what's on the inside. With Job, there's no hypocrisy. What you see is what you get and what you see on the outside. And that's going to be extremely important here in just a moment. Because what you're going to see is what's on the inside come on the outside. And what you're going to see is him worship God. And you're going to see a man and the fruit of his heart in the hardest of times and under the deepest and, and most difficult of circumstances. Let me just go ahead and give you some application. That's going to be extremely important for you. Okay, But if you're going to suffer, and you're going to suffer well, and you're going to endure um, all that this world, the flesh, and the devil have to give, men, you must be men of character. You must be men not of hypocrisy. Suffering in trials and circumstances um, bring out in us the reality of our souls. And you're going to ask, how in the world can a man like this respond in the way that he does, I'm going to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. It is because this was the type of man that he was. Um, he wasn't a sinless man and he wasn't a perfect man, but, but he was a man. He was a blameless man. He was a man of integrity. He was a man um, without hypocrisy. He was an upright man. He was a genuinely righteous man. Ethically, morally, spiritually, he complied with God's standard insofar as he understood and he knew it especially in the relationship with neighbors. He's blameless towards God in this moment, and he's upright with those that are around him. He carries himself as God would desire. Most importantly, possibly, he feared God. John Murray writes, quote, The fear of God is the soul of godliness. To fear God is to fundamentally know God as He is and who He is in His person, character, and nature. It's a reverential awe of Him. It's a loving devotion to God. It's a dedicated service to Him that grows out of it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, you know. And you're probably thinking that, in, that, that, that Solomon wrote that. How does Job understand that? Because Job, in Job chapter 28, 28, actually says those very words. That the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and that, that, uh, that shunning from evil is understanding. That Job had an understanding of who God was, at least in some sense. And it's not a perfect knowledge of God. It's, it's not an exhaustive knowledge of God. Because what we're going to find is that at the end of the book, he's a different man than in the beginning of the book. And the thing that changes the man at the beginning of the book to the end of the book is the presence of God. Um, it is the character of God. It is growing in the knowledge of God. And so, thus he, sh he turned or he shunned, he eschewed from evil. The fear of the Lord is to turn away from evil. Job lived his life in a way that he rejected evil. Um, he would not count it, he would not consider it, he would not abide with it, he would not um, have it as part of his life, um, his family, his business. Um, he was a man of integrity, he was a man that loved God, he was a man that feared God, he was a man that turned from evil because of all of that. Um, he was a pious man, he was a reverential man, he was a, a godly man. Not only that, he was a family man. Uh, verse number 2 says that he had seven sons and three daughters born to him. Um, there's probably some indication there that he had a... Uh, Job wants to give us a picture of a happy, a full family. You know, the terms, I, I, I'm not all into to numbers in the Bible in the way that some people are, but, but what you find throughout the Bible is, is that there is some significance in numbers. 
The, term, the number seven is often used and speaks of completeness. The number, th- the number three is often important, three days, and you see these patterns throughout Scripture. It's not always definite, but you do see patterns. It could be that the term seven and, the, and three there is going to be repeated, 7,000 uh, sheep and 3,000 camels. And, and what, what we have here is possibly a picture of the author of Job is trying to paint that this is a man who's, who's not only complete on the inside, he's complete on the outside. He's a man that is a blessed man. His business and his life is crowned with glory of God and and the blessing of God and that his family is crowned with the blessing of God as well. What you have here is a picture of a happy, full family that is crowned with the blessing of God. Not only that, he's a wealthy man. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, a, a very large household, it says. So that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. And we could go into the prestigious nature of who this man was, the power and the prominence that he possibly had, hence the the phrase that in the East he was the greatest um, of all the people. That his wealth and that his fame had spread abroad such that he had um, probably incomparable riches in the East. Um, he had donkeys, he had oxen, which means that he was possibly not a, he was not a, a nomad, but a farmer. He was a man that established his, his um, home there, and he was working and laboring um, with sheep and with camels and with a number of other things to build up um, for God's glory in that, that area. Uh, wealth is often portrayed as negative in the Bible. Oftentimes we portray it as negative within the church, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. It is a snare of the devil that millions have fallen into. But the book of Job is very indicative. It makes the statement that Job, in his um, assessment of himself, and his, as he argues and dialogues with um, his three friends, or not so much friends, um, the, the Job gives the picture that, the book of Job gives the picture that um, he used his wealth well. It wasn't a snare of the devil. And chapter 29 and through 31 particularly, they, he used his, his wealth to rescue the needy, to care for the handicapped and dying, to take care of the orphans, to take on the oppressors who were oppressing the poor. At one point he says, you know that I broke the jaw of the oppressors. He took care of the underprivileged. He fed the needy. This was a man that was not enslaved to his wealth or enslaved to his money, but had control of his wealth in such a way that he propagated the glory of God with it. And he demonstrated his righteousness, his integrity, his blamelessness, his fear of God and his love for his family in the way that he utilized the blessing of God and the crown, of, and the crown that he had placed upon each of those things in the way that he used his wealth. Again, he was a family man. Verse 4, his sons would go in the, and feast in their houses each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly or continually. Uh, Verse 4, what you have there is a picture of feasting and celebration among his children. Uh, I think that what he's referencing there is a chi- is, is the chi- are the children's birthday feasts. Later on in, in chapter number 3, he uses it to speak of the day that he was born, even possibly mourning that very day that he was born. Um, so I, I think that what we have here is a picture that it, at each child's birthday, that they would gather together for a week-long feast. And at the end of that feast, 
um, Job would act. Job saw himself as the head of his home. He saw himself not only as the head of the home, but the priest of the home. We know that this precedes the, the giving of the law, Abraham. Um, but, but, but what we do have contained within Genesis is that very, from the very beginning, sacrifices began to be given because of the promise that was given related to the curse of man and the fall of nature. We know that immediately a beast was offered on behalf of Adam and Eve, and chances are that that continued on through the godly line and the godly seed. And one of the reasons we can believe that is because here in the book of Job, Job has an understanding of sacrifice. And he offers that sacrifice and burnt offerings on behalf of his children and on behalf of sin. He offers up for them, the text says, sacrifice. He doesn't appear to be um, a mere moralist but understands at least in some sense that his children need, need God and that, um, and that to receive God or to have God or to know God, that they need atonement. They need their sins covered. There's a redemptive thrust in the way that Job leads his home. He knows God and he knows his children. He knows he's a sinner and he knows they are too. Thus Job continually um, offers of sacrifices on their behalf um, in the event that in during these feasts they gather together and blaspheme or maybe even even curse God. But this isn't a man that, that merely sat back and hoped that his children made it and along the way um, you know, gave them some good moral advice and, and sought to keep them out of trouble. Um, but he was a man that conscientiously, intentionally labored with a resolved activity to intercede for his family. This was a godly man, a pious man, a family man, a, a man who loved the gospel insofar as he, he had it. He was going to be a man that served the Lord. And thus Job did consistently. He was steady. He was regular. He was constant. He understood what was at stake. He's not like us. So much of our parenting revolves around again keeping our children out of trouble and giving good moral advice. But he understood that in his home, he was a gospel minister and that his children needed God. And without him, they would be lost. That's what we have in the first five verses. And it's in some sense a picture of who Job is. And there are people and proponents out there that think that Job just got it wrong. You know, <laughs> that uh, what we're going to find later is that Job is going to fail because he lacked in faith. And that, that, that would be true if we didn't have more of the book. That would be true if here in just a moment, God didn't, in the relationship, in His, in his discourse with Satan, um, say and repeat the very character that we see at the beginning of the book, that fourfold, that He's blameless, upright, um, fearing God and eschewing evil. That, that, that God, in, 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 in this relationship with Satan, in this discourse, um, repeats that very thing, that this is what we see here in this man. So we see the character in the life of Job, but we also see um, what we might title a cosmic wager in verse number 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro from the earth and walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, These chilling words, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job, does Job fear God for nothing? 
Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord God and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. What we find is, a, is a seemingly a unique circumstance that, that we possibly have references to later, such as even with Peter. We see an assembly of the sons of God, angelic beings. The idea is that you have these heavenly couriers out doing God's bidding and it seems that God assembles them together at some point so they can give an account of their activities and receive fresh commissions for the plan and purpose of God. Again, that's speculation with what we have with the text, but it seems like that's what's going on. And we see one approach to the very throne of God, the very presence of God. Um, and, and the text refers to him as Satan. It, but it could literally be the Satan. That it is a title given to this angelic being, this fallen creature. Literally, it could be translated the adversary. Yahweh, God of heaven and earth, looks at him and says, where do you come from? Or the nature of the question may be somewhat like, like you, you, you don't have a right to be here. There isn't, this isn't your assembly. Where do you come from and why are you here? What's your business in my court? Could be kind of the nature of the, the question there. Satan nonchalantly seems to say, just kind of roaming around, seeing what's going on. The idea here is not that he's lackadaisical, just meandering, but that, he, that, that he's an intruder here. He, he's there to invade upon the, the peace of God and the shalom of God and intervene in his plans. He's the evil one. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the prince in the power of the air. He's the ruler of this age. He's the serpent from the beginning. He's the dragon in the end. John tells us that he's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He's the accuser of the brethren. But at the same time, I don't want to give him too much time on the mic because Job doesn't. After chapter 2, you won't hear of Satan anymore. Um, he's not one of the primary proponents. This is God and this is Job. Primarily. Verse number 7, God raises a question. I don't know that we have all the dialogue here, but what we do have is, is, is that God's the one that actually provokes Satan to think of Job. We generally think of the book of Job as if Satan is rushing in saying, give me Job, give me Job, give me Job, if you just give me Job. But that's actually not what the text says. Job actually comes up from a different perspective. God says, have you considered? Have you taken to heart, it could be translated, have you taken to heart my servant Job? Have you not noticed him? Um, it is God that begins the cascade that we have before us. He calls him my servant. My servant isn't just, as, you know, I know we're all servants of God if we're believers of God, but this is unique in the Old Testament. Um, it's a rare distinction of great men and faithful men. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Isaiah, the prophets, Jesus in the songs of the songs of Isaiah will be called my servant. These are unique men. These are faithful men. These are men called for and with a purpose and given a commission unlike most other men. And that's what he says. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. Not only is he the greatest man in the east, but there's none like him in all the earth. Um, one commentator all right, this isn't a commentary. He wrote poetry concerning the book of Job. He writes this. It's as though a diamond thief should meet the owner at the back of a jewelry store late at night, and the owner says, 
what are you doing here? And the thief says, just walking around your store. And the owner says, have you seen my most precious diamond right up there at the front? Seems crazy to us. But this is exactly what God does. Unafraid of what Satan can or will do. Verse number 9, um, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan brings a cynic of cynics possibly, um, brings a, a charge against Job and really ultimately against God. I, I, I just think of the audacity of the accuser of the brethren, the adversary of God and men, um, standing there nonchalantly and, 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 and accuses Job, but also ultimately accuses God. God says, look at my most prized possession in all the land, there's none like him. And Satan says, ha, do you really think he serves you because he loves you? No, he only serves you for the money. Cut off the check, and I'll guarantee he's out. It's as if the owner of the jewelry store then shows him that precious diamond, and the thief says it's fake. Uh, give it to me, and I'll prove it. You don't actually think Job loves you. You don't actually think that he serves you freely. Give him to me and I'll show you. He doesn't serve you out of anything other than a, a, a selfish devotion to himself. Satan believes Job's in it for what he can get out of it. Satan, of course, is probably speaking from personal experience because his motives are selfish. Or it very well could be that, that the world is filled with, we know, religious men, seemingly pious men who serve God simply for gain. That's Satan's argument. You've protected him. You've blessed his family. I mean, you put a crown of, of everything. I've blessed everything the guy touches. I mean, if you do that for everyone, everyone would love you. Like you bribed him, in essence. You bribed him. And that's the only reason he's as devoted to you as you think. Um, and that's really not that ridiculous of a notion to think, is it? Again, we've met men like that. We've seen men like that all the time. Millennia have been filled with health, wealth, and prosperity movement. It's booming. Every part from that, you know, we treat the... Uh, and even apart from that, because we're not health, wealth, and prosperity people, but functionally on many days we are, thinking that the blessing of God is inherently must come because we're faithful, and when we don't, um, then, then, then we're angry with God. But at the same time, it's even in our practices, right? You know, we, we treat church like it's a, like a consumer-driven entertainment movement with marketing and advertisement to bring you into a church that will meet your needs. I mean, ask most anyone. What are you looking for in a church or what are you looking for in your relationship with God? And they'll tell you. And if you don't have it, they'll go find somewhere that meets those needs. Take those away and they won't serve God. Um, they won't. But give it to them and they'll, they'll be faithful. I'm not saying that inherently to lay a condemnation upon anyone. On many days, that's all of us, isn't it? And we have to battle that and fight that. Verse 11, Satan then challenges God. Stretch out your hand, burst the blessing bubble, and he'll curse you to your face. The original language is very emphatic. It's actually the, 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 the language of an oath. He, he's, he's literally saying, I guarantee you he'll curse you. If he doesn't, may I be condemned. May I be damned. Take it upon myself the curse. If he doesn't curse you, may I be cursed. Satan is convinced as he tempts God and tempts Job. Ultimately, God, because of Job's allegiance to him, you're not worthy of being loved. And he doesn't serve you freely. So God says, okay. And with chilling words, he grants him power. 
Job chapter 1, verse 14, 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job. So we've seen the character in the life of Job. We've seen the cosmic wager. The wager's been made. You have him. Just don't touch his body yet. Anything else you can take. And then we see the disaster, the catastrophe. Now, there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside him. When the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. There's a Sabean attack. I mean, it was an Arab, it was a, at least as far as we can tell, there's an Arab a Bedouin people that swooped down, took the livestock, killed them all, and took Job's workers in cold blood without mercy. Satan, in all of his malice, and each not only this scene, but every scene, um, calculates to inflict the most pain as possible. The Hebrew text is very emphatic. He, want, he leaves one servant alive. Why? So that he can go tell Job. He says, I, only I, have been left to tell you, is the idea. There's actually just an emotional intensity to that if you could put yourself in the text. Job runs by it quickly. Um, but, but, but really, you can imagine him running in from the field. Everyone's been slaughtered. The, 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 all of the wealth is gone. The cattle has been taken. Those men possibly stood and fought. Maybe not. We don't know. But everyone's dead but one. And he runs in with sweat on his face, possibly wounded with blood dripping off and without breath. He says, it's all gone. Every bit of it. It's all gone. I, only I. Um, verse number 16. While he was yet speaking, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, and you're going to see that phrase over and over again. It's as if he's there giving the bad news, and in the midst of the bad news, more bad news comes. He says, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While the first servant is still speaking, the second one comes, and we know, again, being orchestrated, this is being orchestrated by Satan himself, diabolically arranging to where there's a cascade of events that just are going to utterly crush any man. It says the fire of God came down from heaven, uh, possibly a lightning strike that caused a fire that spread like wildfire extremely quickly, and in all their efforts to save the livestock, the fire grew so fierce that it consumed not only the livestock, but all of the servants as well. We move from an act of violent evil men to an act of violent nature. And you can imagine the wealth was a tremendous hit. But you can also imagine that the thing that possibly bothered Job the much, being as righteous man as he was, loving his family, loving God and loving others, um, he lost the men, the servants. Can you imagine someone losing their life on your property while they tended to your land? Job lost it all. Um, third disaster. While he was still speaking, the guy hadn't even got done talking yet. And another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them all away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone, I only have escaped to tell you. Third disaster. A group by the name of the Chaldeans, nomadic marauders, came in, raided the camels, probably the last vestige of Job's wealth at that point, killed all the servants with the edge of the sword, leaves one alive. All of Job's wealth, all of Job's servants gone, one right after the other. Pain added to pain, misery upon misery. 
to this godly man. Fourth disaster. If that wasn't enough. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house, oldest brother's house. Suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This messenger would bring the worst news of all. News that would probably any man would rather die than hear. Same commentator earlier that um, gave a little poetry on the book of Job says, at this point, um, he relates it like this, good master. The idea is, is that there's even a fear here to speak. He says, good master, I do fear to speak what you might die to hear. A powerful wind, maybe a tornado, hit the four corners of the oldest son's house. All of them there are celebrating and feasting the other one's life. Um, all of them are lifeless. Ten children that Job had loved, that he had prayed for, that he had faithfully sacrificed for, that he had interceded continually day to day, that no doubt he loved, that no doubt he delighted in, and possibly offered sacrifice that very morning, went in like a day, just like every other day. And, uh, and it all changed in a matter of minutes. Boom, 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 boom. His life is shattered, it stands. Job's, we're not even going to pretend that we know what Job's going through. He's in a category seemingly all on his own. It's the consummate, and it's not only in a category of receiving um, uh, suffering in a, in, a, in a capacity. This is, this is seemingly one of the consummate works of the evil one. That if he could, this is what he would do to all men. Not necessarily take their life, but orchestrate, um, orchestrate a world in which um, he separates man or woman or child from their faith. Pain without physical pain. Without touching Job physically, he brings upon Job a pain that is unbearable, a pain that he would have rather died than to have. His life has changed forever. He's lost things that, he, that can't be regained. He's lost things that are forever lost. In some sense. All the while, Job has no idea that the source of all of his distress and anxiety was because God said, Have you considered my servant, Job? Break that hedge down and let's see what he's made of. I'll guarantee he's not authentic. Satan inspires the Sabians to come down, the Chaldeans to maraud, and to do the unthinkable, somehow he has power over nature that is granted to him by the Creator himself, yet at the same time, the God of heavens contains complete and utter control. This is the moment of truth, Joe. This is it, man. The ultimate sense for you and the ultimate sense for God. Verse 20, And Job arose, tore his clothes, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell down to the ground and worshipped. It could be that he arose there because upon hearing the news of, 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 of all of the things, it could be that he had just totally destroyed him. It could be that as they're coming in and he hears the escalating intensity of the nature of his loss and what, what, what the evil one had done, that, that, that he just crumples to the ground. Any, any one of us would, 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 would receive it in a similar way. 
Everything that we had loved, everything that we had labored for, everything that we had longed to live for, gone. In the blink of an eye, the matter of moments. Thus, it's very likely that he rises in this moment to tear his clothes because he had been crumpled to the ground. Thus, he rises in utter anguish and he tears his robe. You know that in Near Eastern cultures even today, particularly in Judaism, throughout the Bible we see that, 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 that even though Job is not a Hebrew here, the Hebrews were often, they were very expressive. Even when no one's around, these, these four servants, he rises and, and, he, and he rips his robe. He would have had a tunic on and a very nice robe above that and he rips it as an expression of the ripping of his heart, the ripping of his inner man, the tearing of his inner man, Job, is a man of integrity, complete, no hypocrisy. What you see coming out is what you see on the end. Thus the expression um, of, of loss would be made in the renting of his robe. Then he would go and find the sharpest knife that he could, or at least the first one that he could find, and he would cut his hair. He would shave his head completely as another sign of bereavement and grief and great loss. Verse number 20, it's followed. Not only an intentional rising, but another intentional falling to the ground. And the text says, they worship. He worshiped. Job goes to the ground, but not in agony as he did before. Intentionally and deliberately in an act of submission to God. This is not the same buckling knees that probably took place earlier as he receives news after news after news. At the culmination of it all, intentionally bows his heart and yields it to God in the midst of the most difficulty that anyone could ever imagine. I mean, it's an amazing thing. And he's not worshiping because it's his best life now. Just got done with the book study and the Lord's blessing. He got 2,000 more camels. And it must be God's favor upon his life. He's now worshiping out of the depth of the agony and the pain in his soul. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Lord, condemn those Chaldeans. May God send them justice. He doesn't say, God, send them to hell. All those Sabaeans. He doesn't say, cursed be the sons of Satan. He doesn't say, they've taken everything from me and all I've done is served you. He doesn't say, why didn't you make provision for the Sabaeans? He doesn't look at his servants and say, what were you doing out there? You knew how evil they were. He doesn't lay blame on the enemy. He doesn't lay blame on the servants. He doesn't ask them, why weren't you on watch? He doesn't say, how could you be so careless? He doesn't say, why didn't you see them coming? He doesn't say, why weren't you better prepared? He doesn't say, uh, he doesn't lay blame on himself. He doesn't say, we should have moved the livestock to a safer location. We knew they were in great danger. He doesn't say, why didn't we better prepare the house for the son, for, the, for, for my son that, that was living in? We knew that those winds were strong and that we just weren't ready. He doesn't, he doesn't point the finger. He doesn't look around. He doesn't exercise anger. That even though that some of those are legitimate observations and questions, Job does not. He doesn't curse anyone or anything. At this moment, he doesn't ask why. All we know from the text is that he worships. Naked I came, he says, into the world in my, from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. It's similar to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 7. We came into this world possessing nothing and we'll leave the same. Job is saying and recognizing that when I came in, 
I didn't own a thing, and when I go, it'll be the same. He says, Yahweh gave. That's what, if you have a text there, it should be all capital letters. The covenant keeping God, Yahweh gave, or Yahweh gives, and Yahweh takes away. That's his conclusion. It's one of the most astonishing accounts of Scripture. What he recognizes in this moment is the authority, the power, and the ownership of the Lord. He's saying, I came into this world with nothing, not of my own accord, and anything that I have, I received it from the Lord, from Him and Him alone. As much as it is mine, it's ultimately His. He gave them to me, but they're not really mine. All the sheep, all the cattle, all the servants, all ten of my children. If I have any of it, I have it because it came from the Lord. And as much as He has right to freely give them to me, He has as much right to take them away. If that's not a belief in the sovereignty of God, I don't know what it is. And if that's not an expression of love to God, I don't know what that is. Those children were mine. That Those things were mine. But they were only mine because they were His. They were yours. And Lord, if you desire to take them away, you have every right to. One commentator says, all things belong to God. Absolutely to be given as a gift. Not a claim. And, to be, and taken back without wrong. All things belong to God absolutely to be given as a gift. Not as a claim. And taken back without wrong. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He understood, at least in some primitive sense, without 66 books of the Bible, that God is in control not only of us in a general sense, but also in a particular way. That it's God who governs the universe and the affairs of men. It's He who is sovereign over all, even the details. It's God who is in the heaven and does whatever He pleases. It's God who's working out all things according to the counsel of His own will. It's for from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. Job doesn't have all of his theology ironed out, but he knows that God was God in this and he was not. He'll need to be reminded of that again and again, especially at the end of the book. But in some form, in this moment, he understands it, at least in, a, in an infant way. That he's in control, not over only the good things, but even the bad things. Not that he causes them or creates the evil, but through means, He providentially brings about His will, even while allowing men to be men and fulfill the desires of His heart, thus bringing Him the most glory and His covenant people the most good. He saw, Job saw, God is the supreme being of all the ages and the one worthy of being worshipped even in the midst of great loss. Thus He says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blesses a heartbroken exaltation. Let his name, let his character, let his person be exalted. Let him still be praised and adored. A heart that is still broken. It's in agony. It's lost everything. And he's worshiping God in a heartbroken exaltation. Doesn't blaspheme, but he blesses the very name of God. And the text says through all of this, Job did not sin. What was on the inside came out. Again, you're going to ask how in the world did he do that? He did it because that was the type of man that he was. He was a man of integrity. He was a man without hypocrisy. He was a man that what you saw was what you got. 
when circumstances came down and everything was shattered all around him, that's when you often find the real man. That this is who we are, you know? That these are the things that don't make men. They refine men, but they show us who real men are, who real women are, where true faith is. That it's not simply, the Christian life is not simply about um, you doing the right thing. You know, like one of the goals of raising my boys and raising my girls is not simply to teach them that this is what you do, this is right and this is wrong, but to raise them to be men and the type of men that they ought to be. To cultivate character in them to where they are dignified and uh, uh, men of integrity, men that will love their homes and lead their wives, men who are gospel-oriented, men who will love the gospel above all other things, and that will be um, the, the root and the foundation of all that they do, all that they give, all that they sacrifice, and every way that they serve them. That, that they need to be blameless men, men that love God, men of integrity, men of, of rightness, and that, that, that if we can cultivate godly character and disciple young men and young women, then, 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 then we can prepare them for all of life. We don't have enough time and we don't have enough ink in our pens and we don't have enough um, uh, 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 artillery in our, in our bunkers to teach our young men and our young women or our church every single scenario. We don't have a manual for that. What we need to do is to show them God, show them His character and nature that they might meet Him and that fear of God might be born in them and a love for the gospel of Jesus Christ might overwhelm their souls. That's that it cultivates character through discipleship and the preaching of the Word and the, and, 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 and the teaching of the Word of God and, and through modeling and an example that they be these type of men because I can't be there for them. There's going to be a day when they go there's going to be a day when they leave. There's going to be a day when I can't control the things that are all around them. And it's the same for you. You know, I'm not in control. You're not in control. Satan's not in control. God's got it all in His hands, but at the same time, He puts certain things in ours. Job, how did you do it? He did it not because He sat down and He calculated in His mind in that moment that A plus B plus C plus D equals that I must praise God. It just poured out of Him. It was who He was. It wasn't a show. Later on, you're going to see that because you're going to see the exercise of faith throughout the book of Job. He's going to say some stupid things. He's going to say some things that he should not say. He's going to say some sinful things. Why? Because after a while, this is because after he thinks about it and he listens to these other men, um, he's, he's going to wrestle with his thoughts and he's going to wrestle with the questions and he's going to wrestle with them. Why? Because now he has time to think. Here he doesn't. He simply reacts. And out of that we see a, 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 a wholesome piety and a love for God. And really the, what was in him and what we see here is Satan losing. That his wager that was made, Satan, he won't accept it in the moment, but, 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 he, will, he, but, but he won't accept it in the moment, but ultimately you've lost. This is it. This is the great question of Job. It's not why do we suffer? It's not why is there sin in the world? It's not um, you know, a theodicy or, the, or, or a way to question the answer of evil. This is the question and the ultimate theme of Job. Why serve God? That's it. He never at one moment takes Job aside and says, Job, this is why you're going through what you're going through. 
We read the first and the second chapter of the book. We know what's happening behind in spiritual realms. We know in some sense what God is doing. We have 65 other books we can calculate and systematize and put it all together and think we have an answer to all the questions that Job should have, or we we hope that Job knew, but he didn't. That, That the ultimate question was not, why do we suffer? The ultimate question was not, let's answer the question of evil. The ultimate answer or the ultimate question that, that, that Job is posed with and God poses to us today is why do you serve God? Why? Is it because of all this stuff? Or could someone actually genuinely love God with all his heart, with all his mind, and with all his soul? Where are the righteous men? I know that we're reformed and we have a healthy view of total depravity. And we look at this and we say, it can't be that. God said that he was. That he was a man of practical righteousness. He was a man of integrity. He was a man that was blameless. Not a man that, 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 that was sinless. And not a man that was perfect, but a man that was growing. And we'll see that growth throughout the book. He was a righteous man. He was a man who, who was a redemptive man. He was a man who trusted the gospel, not only for his children, but for his own soul. He's going to say later, my Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives. Thus He charges him with no wrong. Isn't that an amazing statement? You know, He doesn't blame God is what the NASB says. Some people will get lost there, you know. It's like, He just said. He just said. You know. Um, He just said it was God who did it in some sense. Right? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But at the same time, he didn't blame God. Some would interpret that it's he did it, but it's not his fault. But that's not a I don't think that's a good interpretation. Many people believe that only the good stuff comes from God and the bad stuff comes from the devil, so God has nothing to do with it at all. You see it all the time. Some tragedy happens, everyone is so quick to free God from any blame or accountability to anything that happens. Like he didn't mean for that thing to happen. Listen, as much as I want to believe that some days, this is not what Job thought. This is not what the Word word of God teaches. He said God took it away. Later in chapter 2, he's going to argue with his wife a little bit. Um, She's going to say, curse the Lord and die, Job. And he's going to say, will we accept the good from God, but not the adversity? Not the evil? In other words, Satan's a minor player in in this whole game, this whole the thing we called life and eternity, that God's ultimately the one who's in control. And I know that that bothers you because on a lot of days it bothers me. It bothered me last week. But for us who think that, what else do we want? What other kind of God would you like? You want, a, you want faith? Whatever that means. You want to leave our children to chance? You want to leave your life up to chance? Whatever that is. Or would you make you feel better if, if to think that the devil did it and God wanted to stop it, but he couldn't? Does that make you feel any better? Or would it be better to think that the devil did it, although God could stop it? He didn't because he's apathetic and he's indifferent, that he just got the ball rolling after he created. Is that comforting? What is comforting to Job in this moment? 
is that God is a wise God, a good God, an almighty God, a God who is filled with love and power and is omnibenevolent, who wasn't asleep at the wheel but had control at every moment, and ultimately that's the only reason that he can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Listen, if you don't believe God gives and God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, then, then, then passages like Romans 8.28 uh, don't make sense. It's simple wishful thinking. It's faith and it's chance. How in the world can He use all things to work together for good if He's not in control? If He's not governing all things? Bringing about the most good in His glory? How do you endure things like that if He's not? That's our, that's our only hope that any of this means anything. You know? That, 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 are, that the tragedies of life are not just, just, just lost. That God just didn't miss it. That he didn't, uh, that, 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 that the devil got one over on the Lord. That's, it's our only hope that God is orchestrating these things for our good and for his glory. You know? Thus he doesn't charge God with wrong. God takes away, he gives. He numbers our days, he sets our boundaries. He calls all men home one day in a host of whole, a whole host of ways. And who are we to lay a charge of immorality to God? That's what he's saying. We know that he's holy. But we also know that he's love. Job recognizes that and charges God with no evil, no moral impropriety. He had no right to say that God did anything wrong. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Psalm chapter 73 says, Asaph writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. At the beginning of his day, Job had everything, and Job had God. At the end of this day, Job had only God. But in all reality, all along, all he ever really had was God. Because it all came to him by his gracious hand. And it also meant that he, at the end, he still had everything because he still had God. He would have lost everything had Satan been right when he abandoned his faith because all that was lost. But in clinging to Christ in some sense, in an Old Testament fashion, he still retains it all, isn't it? Doesn't he? What is Job's motivation in the integrity of his heart and right conduct? Why does Job serve God? Satan has a definitive opinion as to why, and so does God. And if there's a lesson that we need to learn in the midst of suffering, yeah. Let us learn from Job. A man who is totally satisfied with not knowing why. 
but he's totally satisfied with what God has done simply because he knows who God is. We'll find that once again at the end of the books, Job chapter 42. That's what you see. You're going to see a wrestling of God with Job or Job with God. In chapter 42, you see the conclusion of it all. God answers Job, and this is Job's response in verse 2. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I'm okay. You're right, God. I did not know. And I'm okay with that. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see. My eyes sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job's perspective shifts in his conversation with men and with God from why to who. He says, I know you, you, in verse number two, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. That there is a meeting with God in some sense um, in which Job alleviates himself of any of the mystery and simply trusts in the nature and the character of God that he knows more. And not only does he know more, but he knows better. That there are times, I know it's difficult, that there are times where God comes to us in a unique way and teaches us something about himself in a personal, intimate, and experiential way that makes you look back and say, did I even really know God before that? But that's what Job happens. He knows him at the beginning of the book, but it, it, it's, it, you find this good and this wise and this, this reverent man grow to the end of the book. And while he's real at the beginning, he's as much real, if not more real at the end. That is, his love, his faithfulness, his mercy, his righteousness, his holiness is, is, is transpired and, and, and before Job's eyes. Such that he can say that, that, that I'd heard these things in a didactic way, but now I've practically experienced those. And the reality is, is that this morning, that, that what I teach and what the Bible says and that, 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 that what I'm arguing for and what I'm trying to commend to you as I've sought the Lord this, this week is that, 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 that it is not something that is simply heard. It is something that is received. I can't... I tried. <laughs> I tried. Try to sit down and... Tell my children about losing a little one, you know? How do you do that? How do you reason with them and not make God sound like a villain, you know? I mean, to the natural ear, that's what you hear. But you know better. Why? Because you know God. You know who He is and you know His righteousness. You know His character. You've experienced His love. His practical love has been shed abroad in your hearts in the person of Jesus Christ. And you know that, that whatever He has for you, that, 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 if, that, 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 that in some sense, that it was Romans 8 was read even this morning in Sunday school, that, that if He gave you His only Son, how shall He not freely also give you all things? Like you know that. It doesn't make sense. There's a lack of comprehension. But, but, but Job... And expresses his heart in the midst of loss in such a way that he leans completely on the character and nature of God um, and praises the Lord in the midst of it. And in doing so, he proves God's proposition. 
That He doesn't serve me simply because of what I do for Him. He serves me because He loves me. In the end, it's demonstrated that Job serves God because God is worthy. Not simply because God is his lackey, but because God is God and he knows it. The commentator says, Behold the wise man. Not wise because he comprehended the mystery of his sufferings, but because while not comprehending the mystery, he feared God still. Why serve God? And we can reframe it like this. Why are the righteous righteous? Why do you serve Him this morning? The book of Job answers that question for us. Do the faithful actually serve God for the creature comforts or out of a true love and a trust for, for God? And a true trust for God. Satan's design is to destroy Job's faith, slander God's reputation. But God's design in it all was different. Job doesn't simply stumble into this. He doesn't get taken, or God doesn't stumble into this. He doesn't get taken by surprise by the enemy of our souls. God's design was to magnify his name through Job's life in his faith and integrity that would be sorely tried by suffering. When you think about the suffering, the pain, and the agony that Job went through, you say questions like this, and I'll be done, I promise soon. You think about that and you think, wow, God would really allow something like that to happen to me or to Job to magnify his name as most valuable treasure. The answer is yes. The answer is that there is something in God's universe that is more valuable to Him and to this world than your comfort or your health. God says, you know what? My math is different than yours. You hold your health, your life with almost all of your idolatrous clinginess and there's something more important in this universe than your comfort and your ease. And it's my glory. And you need to understand that when I'm most glorified in your life, that that is most good for you. And I know that that doesn't make sense, especially in much of the trials and tribulations that we we have, but that's why there's martyrs. Or at least that's why there used to be. We look and we read of men and women who, who went to the stake and we think, man, that's great and that's admirable. But sometimes we think, what a waste. Men like Jim Elliott murdered on a beach trying to take the gospel to the people who didn't want it. What a waste. Oh, the good they could have done if they would have played it safer. Man, what a waste. Men demonstrating their love for God being greater than life itself. These men were willing to let good and kindreds go, this mortal life also. We sing songs about men like this. We pay them empty tribute with playful platitudes, telling our children of these great soldiers for Christ, when in all reality we think they're fools. I know we would never say such a thing, but look at our lives. Where's the cross? Where's the sacrifice? Where's the suffering? Where's the service? Where's the forsaking of father and mother, brother and sister? Where's the denial of self? God is not so much concerned with our health, wealth, and prosperity as much as He is concerned with our good and His glory. And sometimes He will drag you through the depths to get it. And a man who's 20 years old and dies at the stake for His glory and the sake of the gospel is no doubt more precious to God than a miser 
who builds barns and barns and bigger barns simply to hide his gold in because he's being conservative or wise with it. We're living in a culture, in a Christian culture, and even in an individual culture in my life to where we're doing everything that we can to mitigate suffering and pain. Even death, we don't want to talk about it. We hide it under everything that we can, you know? Some of the things that we did with our family this week, some look and they, they scoff and they mock and they think, well, why would you do that? Why would you bring that out to the forefront? Because we need our children to know. We need them to know what is before them. We need them to understand what the world is made of. And we need them to know that they can cling to God and Christ in all of those things. That we need not to shun necessarily all the pain and all the suffering, and all of the heartache, and all of the difficulty in the world, that we need to not necessarily enjoy it or strive after it, but we need to recognize that it too comes from God. And that God has a purpose in it, and that we are to endure through that purpose. Not, 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 uh, and that when we endure through it, we meet God in such a way that we've never met Him before. You know? Inevitably, someone's going to ask me, will you try to have another one? You know, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you so you don't have to ask. I don't know. I don't know. We love children. If this was the hardest week of our lives. Carrying our baby home on Thursday in a Tupperware container. But at the same time, we will not make the decision not to have it simply because we're afraid to suffer. We will not fear meeting God in that. We will find Him and we'll find them there. If that's, there's, there's wisdom and there's prudence in all of that, I know. And there may be come to, we come to the conclusion spiritually and, wisdom, and using wisdom that, that, that we're done. Um, but at the same time, we're not going to be afraid. We're not going to avoid the blessings of God simply because we're afraid of what might be on the other side of it. You know, we're doing that in every area of life. We're afraid to suffer, therefore we don't evangelize. We're afraid to suffer. We're afraid um, to put ourselves out there so we don't disciple. We're afraid um, to, to, to do the things that, that God desires for us to do because we're so consumed with self-preservation and keeping our own and preserving ourselves and we're afraid to suffer. We've lost in the church at large a theology of suffering and meeting God there and pursuing the blessings. Job didn't fear, or after that Job, as he meets God and he, and he repents in dust and ashes and he finds them, he continues to go. It doesn't preclude him from pursuing ten more children, the text says. You know, he and his wife continue to serve and to honor and glorify God. He continues to build. He doesn't die in it. He meets God there. He gets up and he knows that whatever I endure, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That Satan has little to no control over my life. The world, the flesh, and the devil, may it come, but it will not. It will not prevail. And that if it's worthy to be pursued, then it is worthy to lose. If it is worthy to gain, then it is worthy to lose if God so um, desires. That He picks up from this and He continues to build kingdom for the glory of God. And He doesn't allow the fear of loss to stand in His way. And He understands, and we understand after the book of Job, that in that loss, now He has a greater fortune than, than, than He ever had before. 
the 10 more children, that, that greater, um, that greater stocks and, and, and land. And, and now he serves his children up to four generations. Generations that would have been lost if he would have feared man more than fearing God. That we must not stand afraid to suffer, but recognize that suffering comes from the very hand of a loving, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God and that whatever is there, I will meet him in and on the other side of it, I will be a different man for the glory of God. And that you as families and that you as couples, what you endure, you receive from the Lord and understand that if He deemed it so, that it is right and good. And that although you don't understand why you have to go through some of the things that you do, you trust God. You have faith in Him. And you get up. You get back out there. You trust God and you seek Him and recognize that although Satan is trying to pit me against my love, the love of God and my children, He'll never accomplish it because they're one and the same. He'll never separate me from the love of God. You know, sometimes we're afraid to suffer as well, and we're afraid to suffer openly. Part of me wanted to turn it off this morning. I didn't want the world to see or hear. Part of me doesn't want to put it on social media because I know that there's some demonic entities out there at the abortion clinic that'll use it when I'm out there. They'll, they'll, they'll use my, uh, my child against me. Let them. thought about preaching out of the book of Mark at Suffering today. Mark chapter 15, you know. Uh, he, Mark doesn't put so much emphasis on the, the physical sufferings, but the scorn. The scorn, the mockers, you know. And if that's the best that Satan has got, to, to mock and to scorn me because of the love that I have for my children, then let me sit their table. Come on, you know. He will not pit me against my father's love because it is the love for my children is born one and the same. We should not be afraid to suffer among the people of God. We should not be afraid to suffer among the world. We should not be so um, uh, consumed with saving face and not feeling it and, and not talking about it. Why? Because this is the one of the things that make us different. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we do not grieve like the world grieves who have no hope. You know? We, we we don't we don't we're not sad like the world is sad. We don't we don't we don't crush under pressure like they do. And it's not because we have anything in and of ourselves that is anything wonderful and glorious outside of the of the of the person, nature, character of God, the very spirit of God in us that, that gives us that great hope. That's let us suffer. Why well, preach a message like this? Why even talk about it at all? Because there's a tendency in my heart not to even want to bring it up. But at the same time, we must suffer and we must suffer well. And our children must see us suffer and suffer well. We must not hide from them all of the difficulties and the trials and tribulations of life. We must bring them along with us. 
We must walk with, weep with one another. We must rejoice with one another. But at the same time, we must be tried one with another. We must not hide it from each other. Why? So that they know how to suffer well. Thank God that Job was written for us. That we could follow in His example. Thank God that Jesus Christ, His Gospels are proclaimed and recorded for us. Why? So that we could follow in His example. And thank God for men who have gone on before me and dealt with the same trials and tribulations and loss that I have. That I look at that example and I say, they suffered well. May God allow me to suffer that well as well. And may the, may the world with all of their scorn mock me for the love that God gave me for my children. Then amen. You know? May they know that I love God and I love my children and I love this church. And if that's all the ammunition that they have, then take it away. But may we not hide the grace of God under a bushel somewhere to where the rest of the world looks in and sees nothing unique or distinct about us. May we carry it in some sense as a badge of honor. Not, not in any way, um, in a sadistic way, elevating or escalating or enjoying the pain. And last week was the hardest day of my life. The last thing that I want is my family to endure that again. I don't enjoy that. That's the point. That in the midst of that, you can say, blessed of the Lord because of the grace that He extends to you. And that's only a taste. But we don't, we don't get sad. We don't grieve like the world grieves who has no hope. We're looking for a day in the gospel of Jesus Christ in which we, we groan for that. You know, that's our hope. And in the resurrection of life and in a new heavens and a new earth under a new creation, um, that, that, that it makes this worth it. That God is worth it. Let Him take it all away. Let all good and kindreds go. This mortal life also. Why do you serve Him? What if God decided today to take it all away? Because I've wondered what might come next week. Will I fear it? Or will I fear God? Will it stifle me in my activity because I'm afraid to move, because I'm afraid to lose? Will I get up and trust God and understand that if that's what's before me, then that's best for me? And may God give me the grace and love and faith in Him to believe in that moment and to be the type of man that will fall on my face and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know? Why, why suffering? I don't, we can have a week-long conversation about that. Why? That's not the question this morning. The question is, why do you serve God? Is it out of a genuine love and faith in Him? Sometimes you never know that until he begins to take it all away. You never know what type of man you are until he starts stripping away all the idols. Until tragedy shows up at your door. Sometimes you deceive yourself and you never know who you truly are. 
until he starts to strip away the ease and the comforts and the pleasures of this life and the, the very idols that you worship. Job, why do you serve God? <laughs> Let me take a few things. Let me add them. I'll show you he's a fake. No, he's a diamond in the rough. He's a righteous, a godly, and a pious man. He's the type of man that you all need to be so that when those things happen, godliness, the love of God just oozes out. Job is not a perfect man, though. And he's not a sinless man. Jesus was there. Even Job's loss was not nearly as great as Jesus' suffering. And we must read the book of Job in a gospel perspective to make any sense of it all. That Job, too, had a redeemer. And that the only way that this suffering will ever make sense is to look to Jesus Christ and the resurrection and understand that he has the power to make it and to redeem it. And that's the only way you could ever endure. That's it. Well, we often joke about the patience of Job. I don't think Job had patience. <laughs> but he did endure. And he endured because he knew that his Redeemer lived. And that this life was a few days and full of trouble. But at the same time, it wasn't the end. And that's what we needed to remember this week. It wasn't the end. And that it meant something. And that God's glorified in it. And it's for our good. And we don't understand all that. And it's a mystery. But I'm okay with that. Because I love God. And I know that He loves me. And if there's more in store, so be it. May God be glorified in my life and in my death. Why do you serve God? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the privilege it is to call upon your name. Father, we Father, we thank you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You give and you take away. Father, I don't understand it all. And I don't need to. But I do need you. Father, I need your consolation. I need your care. I need your love. I need your grace. I need Jesus. And I need him now more than ever. Mandy needs him. Children need him. This church needs him. This isn't just me, Father. This is all of us. We're all struggling. We're all tried. We're all tempted, Father. We're all made of the same stuff. We're weak and we're frail. We're feeble people, Father. And we need grace, grace, and more grace. We need an abundance of grace this morning. So, Father, would you minister to us, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all the earth. Father, would you make him high and holy and lift it up? Father, would you help us to rest in him this morning, Father, to rest from all of our labors and to look, Father, to him. Father, may we know this morning that my Redeemer lives and thus we do not grieve like the world grieves who have no hope. But if Jesus died and rose again, Father, then we have every reason to look to heaven this morning um, without, possibly without an understanding, but with a, a, a holy resolve of faith and trust.
Father, we thank you in some sense for the lost. We thank you for the joy of that little boy. We thank you, Father, for giving us the privilege to carry him for a few days. Thank you for all of our children, Father. Thank you for all that are here and all that are gone. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord to be the men and women that they ought to be. Father, help us to be like Job in some sense, to be continually given over um, by redemptive love for our children, to raise them up not simply to be good or to do good, but, but to be the men that they ought to be, godly men, pious men, godly women, pious men, that are devoted to Christ, Christ alone. Father, we need you to accomplish this because you can't. Father, we need the gospel this morning. Would you please minister to us? Would you help us, Father, in our faith in you? Would you use us, Father, for your glory? Would you help us, Father, to endure to the end and be found faithful on that great and glorious day? Would you help us not to be ashamed of the work that you're accomplishing in us, Father, but to share it with others, to live among others that they might see the example, not to exalt ourselves as some perfect example, Father, but that others may find you too. Help us, Father, more than anything to be a church and people that, um, that are preeminent in these graces, repentance and faith. May that be our preeminent virtues here, Father, that we know how to, to, to repent of our sins and we know how to trust in you. And we trust that all the other graces will in some sense flow from that. Father, we need you to accomplish this because we can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.